When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, baseball family. Brad and I decided we would take a little sojourn into the mailbag. We're very excited about it. We have some great questions, actually, that have come through. If your question does not get read, it's because we loved it so much that we decided to make it its own episode segment later. But we're always looking for more content to talk about and answer and whatever. So go ahead and jump into the mailbag. You can do so by referencing baseballtogether.com. That's the best way to get there. Drop us a line in the mailbag and we will answer those calls. Okay. Brad. Oh, speaking of calls, real quick, Brig, you can also leave us a voicemail if you would like to submit to the mailbag that way. Correct. Um, there is a link on every single episode that uh, you can go straight to the voicemail. This is something that the podcast hosting platform that we use provides for us. Um, and so, yeah, just if you don't want to submit to the mailbag, just click the link in the description and you can leave us a voicemail. I think that would be pretty neat, too. We would love that. Yeah, We would absolutely love it. Brad, the first question I'm going to ask you from the mailbag is... Okay. Why are there not more baseball crossover athletes like Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders? Yeah, there are a few that are noteworthy. You could include Mm -hmm. Tim Tebow. I would say that's fair. Well, the difference between Tebow, though, and like those other guys, he didn't do it at the same time. Like Jordan didn't technically do it at the same time either. I was just going to say that. But Bo Jackson did. And And so so did did Deion. Deion did it in the same day. He did it in the same day. So there's oh, that. With playoffs. Ooh. Yeah. So exciting. <laughs> yeah. So Yes, but why do you think, Brad? So I think honestly it's because professional like professional sports has gotten to be so nitpicky and intense that you can't focus on more than one sport at a time. So for instance, um, the Mariners have a switch hitting catcher. His name is Cal Raleigh. Big fan. I like the guy mostly because uh, he was really nice to Wilson <laughs> at spring training last year. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm a big Cal, Cal Raleigh fan. Pulling for the guy, hoping he does well. But anyways, so uh, Mike Blowers on the Mariners TV broadcast was actually talking about this. He's like, well, you don't. He's, uh, they asked him. They said, they said, Blow, why don't you see more switch hitting catchers? And he said, well, there's a lot that goes into it. First off, as a catcher, you've got to maintain your relationship with every single pitcher on the staff. Every starting pitcher, every bullpen pitcher, every relief pitcher, all of them. You have to know their pitches. You have to understand them. You have to have a relationship with them. Now, that takes a lot of time. Now, as a switch hitter, you're spending, or as a, as a hitter, you're spending X amount of time in the, in the cage every single day trying to work on your swing, right? Well, yep. a switch hitter has to do that double because double. you're not going to cut your reps in half and just do half on one side, half on the other. No, you're going to do your full reps on your right side. You're going to do your full reps on your left side. So a switch hitting catcher 
has to go spend all that time with the pitchers, spend all that time swinging from the right side, all that time swinging from the left side. That is a whole lot of work. Now think about if you've got somebody, for instance, Kyler Murray of the Arizona Cardinals. He was drafted by the Oakland A's. And there's a thought when he was coming out of college from out of Oklahoma, people were saying, you know, maybe he can do both. He's a quarterback. No chance. No chance. You've seen Cool Runnings, right, Brig? Of course. So you know, can't believe uh, you asked me that. You, okay, I, I, then I know you're going to know the part that I'm talking about here. When they're getting their assignments for their spot in the sled, and Sanka's like, I'm going to be the driver. I'm going to be the driver. Yeah. And uh, John Candy, he's like, no, Sanka, you're going to be the brake man. Because the driver is the first guy to practice, the last guy to, the last guy to leave practice. When all his buddies are down to the bar drinking beers, he's in the hotel room studying the turns because his life or the, his life and the life of everybody else in the sled is in his hands. The same kind of concept applies for an NFL quarterback, right? So yeah. the fact that Kyler yeah. Murray was coming out of college as a quarterback and not a running back, receiver, cornerback, safety, whatever, it's like there's no way he's going to have time to play baseball because he's got so much on his hands as a, as a quarterback. And, you know, maybe in the 80s or 90s where it was a lot more just kind of roll the ball out there and play both ways, no matter what sport you're playing, maybe. But now things have gotten to be so technical, so analytical, that there is no way that anybody can cross over and play two sports at once because being a professional athlete, whatever sport you're in, is a year-round job. And if you're not taking it that seriously, you're out. You're not going to make it. And so I I think, you know, Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, those guys relied on – pure athleticism to a certain degree in both sports, I feel like, to get by. And, I mean, both guys are some of the best football players we've ever seen. Bo was one of the greatest baseball players we've ever seen. Dion left sure. a little bit, I feel like, to be on a little bit on the table but outside of his speed. But Yeah, most guys I wouldn't say athletic. he's one of the greatest baseball players ever. No. Yeah, but most guys are not that freakishly athletic and they're not going to get by being able to do that. So I feel like I feel like that's my long-winded way of saying that's why we don't see crossover athletes anymore. Yeah. So I agree and for me the the entire situation comes down to sabermetrics. I think once technology mm-hmm. and analytics like you said got that involved and you could really nitpick every segmented detail about your game and it didn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is, man. You re- really can drill all the way down. You see some of these people taking BP with one arm, and they have a specific bat they use for for you know just their lead arm. Mm-hmm. And then they take their and then they use their a different tool for their rear arm, right? The the, the back arm, and then they put them both together. And then now we have three tools that we're building that we've built into one training event. Mm-hmm. It's like that's a lot of detail. That's a lot of segmented, honed, finely tuned, you know, precision, honestly, yeah. that goes into it. You know, and it's a time issue. It's a time issue. There's only 24 hours in a day, and you got to sleep. And it doesn't matter who you are. Yep. Yep. So that's yeah, why. So that's, yep. That is why. Very yeah. good. Excellent question. I thought that was great. All right. Let me ask you another question here. Um, all-time favorite baseball position and why, Brad? Um, mine would be spring training. Mm. Um, and I mean, I live in the land of spring training now, so it's a little 
different, but at the same time, um, growing up, it was always mid February and I never, it was a long time before I actually understood why my dad would like grab, like kind of like, you know, hit my shoulder about, about my birthday, middle of February, maybe yeah. beginning of February and be like, Hey, you want to go play some catch? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And you know, so we're out there tossing and just talking. And then he goes, you know, pitchers and catchers report next week. Like, oh yeah, that's awesome. No, and it was yeah. Brig, it was the exact same thing every single year. It was always, let's go play some catch. You know, pitchers and catchers report next week. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, nice. So that was so spring training for me has always marked obviously, you know, the beginning of the season, but also um a point for me where it's like I actually need to start throwing if I'm gonna have my arm ready for the season. You know, like I think that was part of it as my dad was kinda helping me prepare and get ready for things. Um, okay. but also um but it's snow's starting to melt. The weather's starting to warm up. Um, you're watching day baseball every single day over spring break. Yeah. And one of my most vivid memories watching baseball growing up was watching uh, the Cubs wear green. Yeah. Or the Cubs, like the Cubs of the White Sox on WGN wearing green mm. on St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always thought it was weird that I happened to walk in every single year <laughs> while that game was on. <laughs> and it's one of the things that really stuck with me. But uh, but I love it. I absolutely love that that's one of my favorite, one of my earliest baseball memories was uh, was watching you know, the Chicago teams wear green on St. Patrick's Day. So, so I'd have to say overall, though, spring training is my favorite baseball tradition. What about you? Uh, take me out of the ball game. No, no questions asked for me. It happens every time. It happens at every level, and it doesn't matter who you are or what team you're rooting for or whatever. It's the moment in the game where we put all that aside and we unify uh, with the love of baseball. It's culturally significant. It's it's transcended decades now. I mean, we're we're coming up on almost a century of that song existing and and for me it has sentimental value extra sentimental value so i get baseball together is is what we do right and so for me take me out of the ball game epitomizes baseball together honestly Mm, that's that's what it's all about because everybody in the stadium does this together and it's it's magical it's the best everybody knows the word Everybody knows what we're doing. Sometimes we compete on root, root, root for the what, but it doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. That's the part. That's it's all part of the magic, right? So when I sing "Take mm-hmm. Me Out of the Ball Game," I do it a, the original, traditional way, which is not the way most people sing it. And um, because I'm a purist, and that's just the way I go. So I'll tell you a quick story. The "Take Me Out of the Ball Game" is so special to me for a couple of reasons. One, because of Every time I go to the ballpark, we have this experience. But on top of that, when I brought my daughter home for the first time, right from the hospital, and it was my turn to lie her down for a nap, and my wife went in and took a nap, and I was, st- she was asleep, and I'm holding this child who's about as, you know, tiny, right? she's this tiny little thing, and I'm walking her to her crib, and I say to myself, well, now, wait a minute. A really good dad would sing a lullaby before I put her down. Nap, and I didn't. I didn't know any lullabies. Like I didn't. I was, <laughs> well, I. What am I going to? So I sat there and I thought, well, holy crap! So I went through my head really quickly the catalog of songs 
that I thought, I mean, I, you know, a lifetime worth of music, right? So I get this, and I'm like, what songs could I make a lullaby if I had to? And I landed, literally, I landed on Take Me Out of the Ball Game. And I slowed it way <laughs> down. And I made it a little, just a little more sing-songy than it already is. Uh-huh. And every single night for five years, we sing Take Me Out of the Ball Game. I love that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Because I used to do the same thing with Wilson when he was little. Yeah. Um, like, he would want me to sing, like, certain songs, but that was one uh, when he would request songs, he'd be like, take me out the ball game? Like, yeah, okay. You got definitely. it. You know, yeah. and actually, Stella, my daughter, who, for those of you who don't know, who has autism, she is nonverbal, has very limited, uh, very limited vocabulary, but basically just, like, uh, labels is pretty much it. Yeah. But she loves to sing. She loves, loves to sing. And Take Me Out to the Ball Game is one of a handful of songs that she actually knows because we've watched it on YouTube a thousand times on uh, <laughs> she likes the Super Simple Songs channel. Yeah. And that's one of the songs that she's she's watched enough that she knows that song and it honestly Brig it makes me want to cry every single time. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. And she's so, so cute, man. She <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> so adorable, dude. Oh, when she came downstairs Thanks, hauling that laundry basket full of stuffies, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I, felt, I was like, you get it, girl. And I was, so for those of you who don't know, I went to visit Brad and I was on an air mattress in his front room and it was <laughs> glorious. And there every morning at like 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. Dude, you're lucky she slept in. I know. <laughs> I know. And here she Because it pl- very well could have been 5.30. <laughs> she plops right down, turns on the TV. And dumps this hamper of stuffed animals out onto the air mattress, and I'm like, I'm like, hi Stella, and she looks at me like, and then looks back at the TV, <laughs> like you do not belong here, but I have other priorities. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's exactly right. That's exactly how it goes. So funny. You know? What a so cute funny. kid. Okay. Oh, I love it. Real quick, Brig. So take me out to the ball game. I have a little bit of trivia for you. I'm going to oh, put you no. on the spot here. Don't. Don't. Yeah. Don't say the D so, word. I'm gonna, I'm using it. Okay. So I'm not. I'm going to assume you don't know who wrote the song. I don't. His name's Jack Norworth. Is who is credited with writing the song. It was him and another guy, Albert Van Tilzer. But okay. Jack Norworth is the one who has uh, primarily has credit of writing the song. Okay. So my question to you, Brig. Uh, had he ever been to a baseball game? Was he a huge Yankees fan? Like, what was his status as a baseball fan? Do you think? Wow, that's so. You're talking. You want to know like the principal writer of the song? Uh huh. Was he a baseball fan? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. He'd never been to a game in his life. Granted, it was 1908. Yeah. So yeah. going to a game was an, it was a different experience, but yeah. at the same time, to me, it's crazy that he has the experience down, and maybe the experience is what he has created—the peanuts, the cracker jacks, root, root, root for the home team, all of it. But it's crazy that this song, somebody had never been to a game, and shaped baseball culture for over a hundred years. Yeah. You wait. He wrote in nineteen oh four, nineteen oh eight, nineteen oh eight. Okay. When was the that first recording that we all hear all the time? I'm not sure. I don't know which because well, I thought I mean, that Harry was Carey in. The, was I thought that was in the 30s? Harry Carey. It might have been. I mean, like I said, 
<laughs> like I said, the song was written in 1908, so I did I'm not sure know that. I didn't know, later on, but. dude. I didn't know it was it. That's 30 years older than I thought it was. Honestly, yeah, crazy, that's awesome. Huh? Yeah, I love it. So, so uh, let me amend my previous statement that we're now past a century. Yeah, not so. That's really Just cool, nuts. man. That's really cool. So, so I uh, real quick talk about that, transcendent. I <laughs> I uh I used to play this trivia game on my computer that's why I know a lot of random crap. Uh and that was actually one of them was like was had he ever been to a baseball game. I thought they made it up. I was like there's no way. So I've looked that up several times just growing up check. just yeah. over the course of my life just to verify, just to reinforce that making sure it's not some Mandela effect thing, you Yeah, know? yeah. But that's bonkers. Bonkers, absolutely bonkers. All right, mm. last thing here, real quick, before we go to a break and then get to more, um, let's go with uh, let's. Quinn has another one that I think is really interesting. It'd be a good one to go into a break to give some perspective here. Mm. How many pounds of force is it when you get hit by a ninety mile per hour fastball? Like, what's the equivalent? Is it like a Conor McGregor left hook or more? So this is one we did a lot of working it out. We, we spent a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, on this one. it's been months. We coming. it has been months because this is not a simple question, not even a little bit. So we spent a whole lot of time googling um, jewels, pounds of force, all kinds of fun things to go along with this. And um, I mean, long story short, what it comes down to is uh, a ninety mile an hour fastball. In fact. A 105 mile an hour fastball from Rawls Fast, Chapman, the fastest ever recorded, uh, does not come close. You would rather get hit by a 105 mile an hour fastball in the ribs than get punched by any any fighter, especially elite, in the ribs. Yeah, an elite fighter. And because let's be clear. To, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Let's Rick. be clear. Getting punched in the ribs sucks. Okay, it's not. <laughs> yeah. This is not a fun. Getting hit by a baseball in the ribs sucks. It sucks <laughs> Let's too, right? Real. Let's be super clear about this. Yeah. So, so I get in, I get punched in the face for fun. That's kind of what I do. And I'm telling you, when this question came through, I was like, "Yeah, that's a good question." So way to go, Quinn. We appreciate you challenging us and also enriching our lives exponentially. Yes. But we, uh, I, I mean, I'm t- watch Mike Tyson. You like just go watch the Mike Tyson highlights and figure that that the the amount of pressure that that dude is is generating is is like yeah. three four times what you'd get out of a hundred and five mile an hour fastball. Well, uh, so I out of the so let's put the, let's put some numbers to this real quick, Briggs. Yeah, so the hundred and five that's still that's one hundred and sixty point three four joules. Yeah, okay? if you're getting hit by. Uh, if you're getting punched by an elite fighter, and yeah. this is like what what is it? Close range? Is that what it is? Close, yeah, you short range. Short range power punches. So that's we're talking like close distance, elite hook, that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's two hundred forty-one point three four. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lot for those. Could be of you a aren't could be sure. a rear uppercut. You know, yeah. something like that. But yeah. yeah, and so somebody like Mike Tyson is going to hit you with more than that. I'm sure more than that. McGregor's going to hit you with more than that. Um, yeah, you'd rather get hit with a baseball, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, and Conor McGregor's not a heavyweight. That's why I bring up Mike Tyson. So you talk about right, Mike Tyson. Yeah. You 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 talk about Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua. You get some of these boxers at that heavy heavyweight level. 
right? And they are generating far more than what you'd ever imagine. I mean, can you, like, you literally, one from Mike Tyson when he misses, we talk in baseball all the time about, man, he just barely missed it, but he's sure he just snuck it over that porch, right, in right field at Yankee mm-hmm. Stadium. Yeah. Even though he missed, right? If Conor McGregor punched you, Mike Tyson punched you and missed, you're still going to die. Like, yes. The average yeah. person is going to die. Yeah. <laughs> it's like getting in so. a car accident with no airbags. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad, bad news, news bears. bears. <laughs> you! We need a break so bad. <laughs> yes, we do. Take a break. We'll get back with more mailbag. Welcome back, baseball family. Let's get into this last segment. We have four more mailbag questions to talk with you about. Um, one of them that we're going to get into first this is from Tim Jensen. Um, and this is something that I have addressed multiple times over the course of the couple years we've been doing this. So you guys all know who my all-time favorite player is, but I don't think anybody who doesn't follow us on TikTok knows who Briggs' favorite player is. So, Brig, who is your all-time favorite player and why? <laughs> and why? Thank why? you, Brad. You're welcome. Thank you, Tim, for the question. A um, couple things. Derek Jeter is not my favorite baseball player of all time. Hmm. I know. In fact, he's number two. And so, Rick, he was always number two. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> and guess what? Nobody else will be ever again. Okay. That's a good point. You're not wrong. The end. So he's always number two. Um, my favorite baseball player of all time is Lou Gehrig. Actually. Lou Gehrig and I share German heritage. I really like. We also share uh, the burden of injury, and mm. that's not uncommon for baseball players, so it's not necessarily mm. special. But what I find really cool is that, okay, context, he had a deal with Louisville Slugger back before they were Louisville Slugger, and they got uh, Hillerick and Bradsby is the name of the company, and they got they had him on a deal – and every year, getting to the latter part of his career, and we didn't know it was the latter part of his career, obviously, but I talked to the guy at the Louisville Slugger Bat Factory and Museum who's in charge of record-keeping in the bat vault. That's his whole job. And I talked to him, and I said, you know, tell me about... I, I happened to be there on the day they were going over this cool history stuff. <laughs> it was Literally, I walked in under the coolest circumstances. <laughs> so I get there... And I'm actually with Tim Jensen, actually. He was there with me. There you go. And we get, we get talking about uh, these different bats and these different turning models and different weights. And, you know, and they let us handle some of these bats that were, by, you know, these major league players, master, master bat models. Anyway, long story short, they pull out the book. They have this huge book full of details about players that have ordered which turning model and which weight and which length and all this you know all these little nuances and they said that they had they been paying closer attention or anybody had any indication that something was wrong with Lou Gehrig then he would have they would have known something was wrong because going back to look at his records you can see 
how he shortened and lightened his bat every year leading up to his relatively final sudden yeah. final year. Yeah. That's crazy. Exactly. It's crazy. And it was it's basically the coolest story ever, I think. Um so what but and here's why it's the coolest story ever. Because the guy still played baseball. Yeah. He still showed up and went to work every day. He still put in his time. He still got the at-bats. And what he decided to do was knowingly or unknowingly acknowledge that something was wrong and that he needed to adjust as many things as possible. And one of the things he adjusted was the tool he was using at the plate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because he was swinging a freaking tree trunk at one point, right? And it just well, got all lighter and lighter. Logs at, at that time, you know? <laughs> it, right, exactly. So it, it, so it gets lighter and lighter and lighter and a little bit shorter over time. And they, the guy who manages the book at the Louisville Slugger Bat Factory said, literally said, no, 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 look, you can see it. Progressively, he gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And then to perform... At that level throughout, I mean, this is what we're talking about is chronic resilience. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand it. Not at that level. It's insane. Like, how much shorter and lighter did it get? Was it like a couple inches by the end or was it like fractional? No, it was was like a full inch or so. Inch and change. If I remember right. So basically it went from like a 33 to maybe like a 31 and a half. Right. Like it was a margin... It was a noticeable margin. That's significant. One, well, the thing that's the crazy weight, about that, the, the thing that's crazy about that down. too, with the length of a bat like that, is that like I remember even going from a thirty-three to a thirty-two at some point in in high school. Just like yeah. um, if it just happened to be like that was the bat within reach, or there was somebody who was really throwing yeah. gas, like dude, go down an ounce because it's coming in. You feel right. like you feel like you're missing half the plate, and it's only an inch. The fact that he felt like he still had the coverage that he had. And was able to, to provide that coverage at almost, what, an inch and a half shorter? That's nuts. It's crazy to me. I, I mean, granted, the reps help, but still. Sure, but and I can't remember the dimensions. I'd have to go look it up. But I remember being shocked, but yeah. shocked, noticeably like, whoa, that is a significant weight drop. Yeah, like, that's, that that's is a crazy. much lighter bat. And it's every year... For like three or four years, it got lighter and lighter. And wow. for him to perform at that level and still be totally deserving of the Hall of Fame, totally deserving mm-hmm. of all the accolade and everything. I mean, Henry, his name's Henry. Henry is my guy. Yeah. 100%. I That's mean, awesome. And if you haven't seen the film Henry on Amazon, you've got to mm-hmm. go watch it. Yeah. It's so good. It is. It's really good. I actually watched it on your recommendation break, and it is very good. Thank I watched you. it with Wilson. We liked it's it a cartoon. Yes. You show it to your kids. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, that's that's what it is. It's a cartoon, and it is so good. Mm-hmm. Henry and Me is what it's called. Henry that's and right. Me. That's right, yeah. Henry and Me. I knew there was something else to it, but yeah, Henry and Me. It's a great one. Very, very good. It's so cute. Anyway, so Lou Gehrig, nine times... I mean, 100% of the time, he's my favorite baseball player ever. <laughs> Not nine. T- I always say nine times out of ten. Sorry. <laughs> nine times out of ten plus that other time, it's going to be your favorite. Nine times out of ten and then the other time. <laughs> it's, it's always Lou Gehrig. Every time. 
Derek uh, Jeter edged his way in there, though. He for sure did. And for good reason. For good reason. Yeah, but. totally. Any hoodles. All right. Let me ask you a question, Brad. Okay, go for it. If you, this is similar, if you could have dinner or a meal, if you could share a meal with any athlete, past or present, who would it be? I might want to sit down with Yogi Berra. Um, what? I mean, I feel like Griffey was the obvious answer, right? Um, yeah. Just because he's my hero. But I, so I felt like I had to go like, who's the next guy in line? <laughs> right. So that's why I would say Yogi Berra, because it would be really cool to sit down and talk with somebody, especially like if I was still playing, right? Like if it was, if this was 20 years ago and I was still playing <laughs> and I could pick his brain and be like, okay, like, what do I need to do to have myself in physical condition to play every single day of the catcher? Because I want to be mm. able to do that. And also, what can I do to improve my plate approach to be able to play every day as a catcher and be a great hitter as well? And also, you know, you're going to – because that's one of the things. I feel like he was one of the first, like, power power hitting catchers. is weird to say because Yogi Berra is known for, sure. for his Yogi Berra-isms. Because you're going to get a whole lot of those, which is going to be a lot of fun. So, you know, you're going to be laughing while you're sitting there at dinner or whatever. Um, But, no, like, Yogi Berra is actually one of my top five favorite players of all time because of his position. I did not know that. I did not know that. Yeah. I'm happy for you. Well, thank you. (laughs) And he happens to have been a Yankee. (laughs) So That's amazing. That's my guy right there, Yogi Bear. What about you, Brick? Who would you like to sit down with? My my pick is also a catcher. Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench! I love Johnny Bench. Oh. No, it's not oh, Johnny man. Bench. <laughs> that is though that is a terrific a terrific guess. It's not Johnny Bench. Okay. It's actually Thurman Munson. Thurman Munson. Okay. Go. I want to sit down with Thurman Munson. And I want to know. What what was his life like? What was his approach to baseball? Because, look, everybody loved him. Everybody. And he was this iron horse figure. He was always dependable. He ran everything, right? He was like the leader of, of the team, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware, right? Everybody respected him, and I'm like, how are you this talented athletically? But more importantly, how do you balance all that fame and all that pressure and all that everything against the social dynamics of baseball, the social dynamics of superstardom, the social dynamics and the cultural dynamics that that all come to the to the table? And I mean, this is a guy that that was just confident, just Mm -hmm. confident, capable. He was a consummate professional. I want to sit down with that guy and learn what it's like to be a good person. There you go. And then I love he, it. obviously, he, you know, he died way too soon. Yeah. And it's yeah. tragic. The whole story is tragic. So it, I feel mm-hmm. like the biography or autobiography that should have come, ne- you know, like yeah. we don't have that. Yeah. Kills me. Because that, talk about a good person. And that's, I would say the same thing about Lou Gehrig, right? Just good people. Yeah. Luckily, fortunately, we have great Lou Gehrig 
documentation. But we don't have right. great Thurman Munson documentation. Yeah. It bugs me. Yeah. It's a good point. Thanks. All right, next one we have, Brig. Uh, this one says, if you could travel back in time to any game in the history of baseball, what game are you attending? And you called me out. You're like, duh, this is super obvious for you. So we upped the ante just a little bit. Let's pick two games, Brig. What two <laughs> games are you going to go back in time and see? Let's do one and one and then one and one. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. My first one is game. Hold on. I got it up. Game three in Chicago, 1932. Whoa. I want to see if the babe literally called his shot. I want to know. I want to be standing there close to the dugout, third base side. I want to watch that arm go out, and I want to see what the freak actually happened. Was he pointing at the mound? Or the pitcher circle or whatever it was at the time. Was he pointing <laughs> out in the outfield? I forget. Was he pointing out in the outfield? Was What was it? Did he, did he literally call a shot? I have to know. I got to be at that game. That's the one I'm going to. Number one. Easy. What about you? That's awesome. Okay. Um, so my number one, like Brick called, called me out on. And for very good reasons. Uh, going to Briggs Dark Spot. It's it's Game Five of the 1995 ALDS. As a Mariners fan, that's like to this point, that's the biggest moment in Mariners history, for sure. And like having watched that game on TV and experienced it that way, like that's all well and good. But as an adult, if I could go back in time and and I don't know if I necessarily, I don't have to know, like I can know the outcome of the game and it still be a good time. Right, yeah. but just like be to be there and see the whole game unfold would be unreal. And I, I mean, you could say that about hundreds of games through the course of Major League Baseball history, right? Because like there were some that came to mind. I'm not going to say the one, my second one, but like one of the ones that came to mind was the the Pine Tar game. Like if oh, I could just yeah. like be there for the last inning and watch that unfold. Oh my yeah. god! Which half of the Pine Tar game? Which so part? Funny. What's that? The, oh. Which part of it? Because remember, they had to replay it later. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. If I could be there, if I could be there for the first part of it before it had to part. be replayed, I could yeah, do without yeah, the yeah. second ending. That's just. I'm fine. teasing you, but, man. I'm teasing you. <laughs> but no, the '95 ALDS in Seattle, where yeah. Griffey scores the winning run, um, that would just be like next level. Be so cool to just feel the rush and the experience and experience that in person. So, okay, that's great. Brig number two for you. I, I'm I'm totally torn. Okay. I mean the 2016 Game Seven, the World Series. Come. On. Yeah. That might have to be my answer. Okay. But I'm torn because how could you how could you not watch the flip? How could you not watch? Uh, how could you not watch Cal Ripken play? Mm-hmm. Right? How could you choose to? I mean, there's so much and so hard. <laughs> um, but I think I would be there when, and I know this is homerism. I'm so sorry, but I would be there when Reggie Jackson hit three home runs in the World Series game. That's a good one. I like that. That's well, really I mean, good. I mean, can you imagine? Can you literally? I don't know. Yeah. 
That's that's a really good one. I like it because that's a big deal. It's a really big well, deal. 19, 1977 World Series. I feel like comes Mr. October. I feel like being it. I've never been in a game where anybody hit more than one home run. Like me neither. If you actually, I feel like being at a game where a guy hits too much less three would just be unreal. That would be some kind of experience yeah. to have. So yeah, very cool. I well, like and he, it. I think he did it. If I'm not mistaken, Reggie did it on the first pitch of each at bat. He's ready to play. He ate his Wheaties. And real quick, Brady, let me get on a soapbox. <laughs> for, uh, like regarding that, because my thing is I tell, as a, as a, as a baseball coach, um, I tell the kids on the teams that I coach all the time, don't take the first pitch. Hit Do it. not. Get up there, swing ready to swing the bat. If you swing and miss on that first pitch, I don't even care. If you get up there and swing on the first pitch, it, like if it's a ball, I don't care. You're ready to, you're ready to hit. Yeah. Because that's often going to be the best pitch you're going to see in the at bat. There's no reason to let it go by. Yep. So anyway. Okay. What's down. your second game? Okay. So there were a couple that I was seriously considering, um, and I'll be honest with you, they're both Yankee games, <gasps> and uh, they're both in the same year. Um, one of them was a Yankee win. The other was a Yankee loss. So, Brig, let's go back to 2001. I'm going to make a decision right here, right now, as we talk through this. Okay. Um, So, as a Mariners fan in 2001, uh, I was ready for them to go to the World Series and win. Like, I told my parents already, like, we need to we need to get ready to order uh, Sports Illustrated because we need to have the, the championship package. Like, we're going to have to get that. That was something I told my parents. Well, the course yeah. of history was changed on October 13th, 2001, Game 3 of the ALDS between the A's and the New York Yankees. Um, in yep. the seventh inning, the A's were getting ready to, to put the Yankees away. It was getting really close time was running out and then of course Derek Jeter leave it to him to anticipate a ball being thrown offline from the right field corner and goes over and grabs it and flips it to home for uh Jorge Posada, Jorge Posada. to tag out was it Jeremy Giambi Jason it was Jason Giambi Jason Jason, Jason. Giambi yeah and so he tags him out and that was basically the momentum flip right there and the series the Yankees came back I mean that was an elimination game it was an elimination game. The Yankees would have lost and been eliminated. Yes. Gone, and the A's would have right. gone on to play the Mariners. Um, that is a game that I just can't imagine the air getting taken out of that stadium. Because it was in Oakland. It was in Oakland. So just like feeling just like the vacuum of the air just leaving oh. that stadium when that happens. Just like, oh, shoot. We're going to give this oh, team a second God. life? Are you kidding me right now? We would have had a this runner on team. second with a lead. Oof. So that would be just like a crazy game to be at and to watch that happen and just ex- just like I said, just experience that just because that would be insane. Bro, I literally brought that up as one of my honorable mentions because it is huge. Uh huh. Oh, so and I don't care. I don't care what side of the equation you're on. It's huge. It is. It's really big. And I'm just gonna tease real quick. We're gonna do a what if down the road. 
And I have, that's one of our what ifs that I want to do. I want to address Brad, that very play. Brad's really excited about I'm that. I'm so excited about this. It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so yeah. And, and the other one that I was considering was Game 7 of the World Series that year. Oh, yeah. Especially like, uh, so last weekend, not this last week, but the weekend before um, Memorial Day weekend, the Mariners were in town. So Wilson and I got to go to a game on Saturday. I went to a game with a buddy on Friday. And yep. uh, the whole weekend they were celebrating the 20th anniversary of the World Series win. And so I kind of got a little bit of the fever. Like I got to go through and see the museum and uh, so where cool. they have the, the Commissioner's Trophy on display, everything. I got to see all that. that so I kind of awesome. got the fever. And it would be really cool as somebody who lives in Phoenix now to like ex- to just experience that. So that was my honorable mention. But anyway, I, I guess I chose it. three. So Fine. <laughs> go ahead with the last one here, break. <laughs> Okay. All right, the last one, baseball family. We want to know this is <laughs> this question came up. <laughs> Cancel culture came after hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so, the question now is what should the newest all-American portable snack be <laughs> if it's not hot dogs? <laughs> and Brad, I'm going to let you why don't you answer this question? <laughs> well, my my question, I'm going to answer this question in a form of a question. Well, with what's question, wrong with hot dogs? Yeah, n- what, what's nothing, wrong with sir. hot dogs? <laughs> nothing. Why does I, I think I missed something with cancel culture and hot dogs? I don't understand what's going on with hot dogs being canceled. <laughs> don't cancel hot dogs, please. <laughs> don't. Please don't cancel hot dogs. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you this, Brig. If if hot dogs get canceled, the newest all-American portable snack should be a Polish sausage. <laughs> or Ditka. <laughs> that sounds fair. I think Denise knows all about that, right? <laughs> yes, she does. Definitely. Very good. Catch new episodes of the Baseball Together podcast every Tuesday.